This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America, brought to you through the cooperation of the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, and Link TV. And now, here's host Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week, justice, human rights, and immigration issues in Central America. We'll look at current issues and a legal case that stretches back 26 years. But first, Sierra Hancock has our weekly review of news from around Latin America. New York's governor, Andrew Cuomo, became the first governor to visit Cuba on a trade mission since the United States and Cuba began working toward diplomatic relations last year. Cuomo took the controversial trip despite criticisms from conservatives that he should not be doing business with a dictatorship. At a final press conference in Havana, Cuomo said the trip was a success. The isolation of the past has not been productive, and developing a full relation with full diplomatic relations will allow us to deal with the issues where we agree, also issues where we have disagreements or different perspectives, like in the area of human rights. A technology firm and a medical company say they struck deals with Cuban officials during the governor's trade trip. Missouri's Governor Jay Nixon was scheduled to head a trade delegation to Cuba last month, but Nixon changed his mind a week before the trip, and instead his wife headed the trade trip. More conflicts in the mysterious death of Special Prosecutor Alberto Nisman in Argentina. Family members say they have found a gun among the prosecutor's personal effects from his apartment. They say this casts doubt on the story of one of Nisman's employees that the prosecutor needed to borrow a gun as he feared for his safety and didn't trust his bodyguards. Nisman's ex-wife, who is a federal judge, has conducted her own investigation of the death. She called it a murder. Initially, Argentine police said it was a suicide, but have now backtracked and have not made an official ruling in the case. The prosecutor in charge of the official investigation has downplayed the importance of this new gun. Argentina is taking British and U.S. oil firms to court, attempting to block their offshore development of oil reserves near the Falkland Islands. The British call the islands near Argentina the Falklands, and the Argentines insist the name is Las Malvinas. The lawsuit is part of the rising tensions between the United Kingdom and Argentina over the islands. Both countries increased the diplomatic pressure recently. The foreign ministries in both the U.K. and Argentina called in the opposing ambassadors and registered formal complaints. These complaints came after further revelations by U.S. defector Edward Snowden that the U.K. has maintained a major electronic espionage presence in Argentina, including the planting of viruses in Argentine computer networks. Pro-Argentine hackers recently defaced websites associated with the Falkland Islands government, posting Argentine flags and files that would play the Argentine national anthem on the sites. Argentina and Russia signed a mutual cooperation and trade pact this week. That includes provisions for Russia to shore up Argentina's military. With the anniversary of the Bay of Pigs invasion of Cuba this past week, the Miami Herald finally revealed the story of the scoop it never published. A story about how one of the paper's reporters had found out about secret camps training Cuban descendants in South Florida. The paper had details about the training and planned invasion almost a year before the military venture failed. But the CIA asked the paper not to publish the details, and the owner and publisher of the paper complied. The paper did not reveal the details until 54 years later. 
The former owner of the Herald, John S. Knight, was a supporter of Republican causes and the Eisenhower administration. The invasion was planned by members of the Eisenhower administration, but carried out by President John Kennedy. For Latin Pulse, I'm Sierra Hancock. Thanks, Sierra. For the past two weeks, the former vice minister for public safety in El Salvador has been fighting extradition in a U.S. court, all due to allegations of his actions during El Salvador's civil war. Besides his ministerial duties, former Colonel Inocente Montano also commanded troops during the war. Human rights organizations accused the former colonel of using those troops and others to conduct extrajudicial killings. They accuse him of running one of El Salvador's death squads. But more importantly now, Montano is fighting extradition to Spain, where he faces charges related to one of the war's more infamous massacres. In 1989, three years before the war ended, Salvadoran troops went to the University of Central America in San Salvador, and at the university, they killed six Jesuit priests, a housekeeper who worked for the priests, and the housekeeper's daughter. So far, no one has been formally punished for the massacre, but Montano could be the first. Five of the priests were Spanish, and a Spanish court accuses Montano of being part of the group of military planners who targeted the priests and then tried to cover up the massacre. Jeff Thale is an expert on El Salvador at the Washington office on Latin America, WOLA, in Washington, D.C. We spoke to him via Skype about the Montano case. Uh, the government had concluded that the, the Jesuit priests were intermediaries with the guerrillas. They were in an all-out effort to stop uh, the, the 1989 guerrilla offensive, and uh, a decision was made to order the killing of the priests. Um, priests were internationally pretty well known. They had played an important role in internally and internationally advocating for peace negotiations to bring the war to an end. Uh, three of them had been repeatedly in the United States. One of them had been here in Washington uh, two weeks before he was killed. So their deaths caused a huge furor and um, helped provoke uh, the decision by the U.S. Congress ultimately to suspend half of U.S. military assistance to El Salvador and uh, uh, kind of compel uh, what ultimately became the negotiations to end the civil war. So it's a, it's a really tragic case for the loss of the life of the, the Jesuits and the, the two women. Um, in a kind of strange way, their deaths contributed uh, to the, the process that led to an end, uh, to, the, to the negotiations that brought the war to an end. Ever since uh, the killings of the Jesuits, there's been a set of questions about who was responsible. Um, U.S. Congress pushed very hard. Representative Joe Moakley led an investigative team. Uh, ultimately, one military officer and uh, six or seven, I can't remember the exact number of soldiers, were charged and tried, uh, given reasonably short sentences, and then ultimately amnesty. So there's always been a question about who's intellectually responsible, uh, and who made the decision, and who gave the orders. In um, 1994, the Salvadoran legislature passed a general amnesty, and uh, I think the government and those in the military involved in making the decision to kill the Jesuits thought that brought the whole case to a halt. Uh, Salvadoran 
you can imagine that the University of uh, Central America, the Jesuit College, as well as a lot of human rights groups, didn't think that brought an end to the case. And they have raised over and over again, uh, in the course of the last 20 years, the demand for an investigation into who killed the Jesuits. That all seemed to be going nowhere until um, boy, about four years ago now, a Spanish court opened an investigation. And they opened the investigation because four or five of the six Jesuits uh, were born in Spain. Though they lived in El Salvador, they were born in Spain, they were Spanish citizens. And so Spain asserted jurisdiction. The Spanish court, in conjunction with um, the Center for Justice and Accountability, based here in San Francisco, conducted an extensive investigation and ultimately indicted uh, 19 or 20 senior Salvadoran military officials. So this was a huge blow. All these people were, a couple of them had died, a couple uh, were nowhere to be seen. Most of them were retired and living comfortably in El Salvador. A few of them were politicians. Um, and it was a huge blow to them to think that the amnesty no longer protected them from potential prosecution. Uh, the Salvadoran government refused a request for extradition, and without a physical uh, defendant in Spain, it looked like the case was going to die. So I know this is a bit of a long way around here, but what interestingly happened is that one of the minor figures in the indictment, uh, Colonel Montano, turned out to be living just outside Boston um, and had come here... Uh, had immigrated to the United States and in his um, petition for entry to the U.S. had lied about his involvement in rights abuses and his role as a soldier. So he was arrested. He was uh, charged and tried with immigration violations. In the course of that, um, the, a lot of evidence was given at his trial about his role in the Jesuit case and other human rights abuses. And um, the judge in, in federal judge in Boston gave him the maximum sentence. Uh, he could have deported him immediately to El Salvador, and had he done so, the case would have once again come to an end. But because he gave him the maximum sentence, which was, I think, about 18 months or two years, it allowed the Spanish court to decide whether or not uh, to renew the extradition request uh, and asked the United States to, to extradite Colonel Montano to Spain. The Spanish court made that request. Uh, recently, the Justice Department decided to respond positively to the request, and Colonel Montano is now uh, about to go um, defend himself against the Justice Department recommendation that he be extradited to Spain. Are we about to see him extradited, do you think, to Spain? I think the likelihood is very high that he will be extradited, yes. And I think that, you know, I think he'll appeal and there'll be a process and it'll take some time. But I think Colonel Montano will get extradited to Spain. And I think what that means is that the trial in Spain will then proceed because they have one physical defendant present. And again, Montano is not uh, a major, the major actor in this case. I think he's more likely to have been involved in the cover-up than in the actual order uh, and the actual decision to kill the Jesuits. Um, but he's part of the, the conspiracy. He was indicted as part of the conspiracy. So that will be very dramatic and will um, 
sort of shake the, the, the comfortable situation of the retired military officers, uh, threaten the impunity they've enjoyed, and I think raise in El Salvador again, the specter of whether other trials in other human rights-related cases will proceed. I want to talk to you more about human rights in El Salvador in the general context. Of course, it's important for those who believe in human rights to seek justice in these cases. But I do find that sometimes in talking about these sorts of cases, that the response sometimes from people is that uh, in these cases and in still in prosecutions of people even involved in the Holocaust and who were former Nazis, we hear that, well, look, this person is, is now fairly old and elderly. Isn't there a statute of limitations to let that person go? And in the Montano case, we actually have somebody who's 73 years old, who's retired, uh, who needs a public defender. Is there any defense in this particular case? Well, Colonel Montano can launch a defense uh, in the Spanish court about his involvement, but I think there's, you know, the evidence of his involvement, the case is pretty overwhelming. It was submitted as part of the, the recommendation to the judge as he considered what kind of sentence to give Montano. And, but I think the bigger question you're asking is, is not about Colonel Montano personally in his defense, it's whether 25 years later we should still be pursuing these kind of things. And I guess I have two responses to that. Um, one is, I, you know, I, well, three, really. One, I think there are defendants who, uh, I, I think there are cases that, that really do sort of cry out for justice, and this, however many years later, and this is one of them. Um, you know, pretty strikingly, there's a case going on in Germany, I think, this week, of a 93-year-old guy uh, who's being prosecuted for his involvement, uh, for being the accountant at Auschwitz. They interviewed... Uh, survivors of the Auschwitz camp, and they said, look at what this is about. We don't care what kind of sentence he gets. He's 93. The issue is justice and recognition. And what we want is a recognition that this terrible crime happened and that he had a role in it and that he admits that. And we're less concerned whether he spends six months or two years or whatever in prison. So I'm pretty sympathetic to that. I mean, I think this case is a particular one. Um, prominent individuals, um, internationally respected and a, a horrifying, uh, you know, pretty cold-blooded execution. So I, I think there is a real need for justice in the case, whatever sentence anybody gets. I, there is a real need for justice rather than sort of washing your hands and saying, oh, that's the past, let's walk away. That's one piece. The other is, um, to me, one of the big questions here is, does the criminal justice system in El Salvador work? And does it work today? That's not just a historical question about prominent academics killed in 1989. It's a live question about El Salvador today. You mentioned that El Salvador passed an amnesty law to not allow people to be prosecuted because of these cases from the Civil War. Does that then instill a climate of impunity? And, and how are we seeing that impunity play out in the justice system in El Salvador? Yeah, that's really a, a great question. I mean, I think that, uh, I mean, historically, clearly, the wealthy and the powerful in El Salvador, like in much of Central America and other countries as well, have been able to manipulate the criminal justice system, the police, the judges, the prosecutors, so that they can act with impunity. They can pursue their interests, whether legal or illegal. They can uh, act against their enemies without, you know, fear of the law and so on. 
clearly the inability of the justice system to work was one of the factors, not the only one, but one of the factors that contributed to the, the kind of breakdown that led to a civil war in the first place. In the aftermath of the war, the, the UN-sponsored Truth Commission recommended that El Salvador's entire Supreme Court resign and that a whole new court be created. Um, the Supreme Court refused to resign, and uh, although eventually those individuals have been replaced, you know, I think there continue to be real questions about whether the court is impartial, whether complaints against judges can be pursued and effectively uh, addressed. Um, I think there are huge questions about whether the attorney general acts impartially or defends particular political and, frankly, criminal interests. So, um, and then there's lots of questions about the police and the ability of uh, criminal elements to corrupt police and prevent them from, from conducting investigations in, in you know, sensitive cases that involve politicians, that involve drug traffickers, that involve other organized crime figures, or that involve gang members who have influence with cops. So I think there's a huge set of questions about making the criminal justice system in its, in its components all work uh, for the interests of, of the rule of law in Jordan. Thank you so much, Jeff Bale, the Washington Office on Latin America, WOLA, our guest today on Latin Pulse. Join us via Skype from Washington, D.C. Thanks, Rick. Democracy is synonymous with independence. Independence is synonymous with emancipation. Emancipation is synonymous with sovereignty. Sovereignty is synonymous with superiority. Superiority is synonymous with arrogance. Arrogance is synonymous with domination. And domination is synonymous with dictatorship. Dictatorship always finds its way. Amnesty International. Learn. Indignate. Act. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. President Barack Obama has proposed sending a billion dollars in aid to three Central American countries as a way to reduce unauthorized immigration, build educational programs, and fight crime. But first, Obama's ideas must get through the U.S. Congress. Here's the second part of our interview with Eric Olson of the Latin American program at the Woodrow Wilson Center. He joined us via Skype from Washington, D.C. The Central American countries have put forward a plan called the Alliance for Prosperity in the Northern Triangle, uh, El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras. Um, they have, uh, with the help of the IDB, come up with a uh, several-point plan that deals both with economic uh, despair and, and lack of development and investment and the security issues that governments face. Um, that plan plus a plan that, that President, Vice President Biden has put forward uh, with the support of obviously President Obama requesting Congress, uh, uh, re requesting that Congress approve a billion dollars in support for Central America. Uh, these are new items on the agenda. Congress wants to take a look at those items. They're trying to decide whether they will support, modify, reject. Uh, also, there's a sense in which people in the Senate want some kind of an update on current situation vis-a-vis uh, -vis the migrant children. Uh, are things improving? Are they, are there, is there going to be another wave of migrant children coming uh, to the United States? So there's a there's a sense in which they're checking in again about this dynamic and also want to 
discuss the plans being presented both by the Central Americans and President Obama. Let's try to follow on some of those themes then. Congress certainly has not been supportive of President Obama's agenda regarding immigration and his executive orders regarding immigration. Do you see them maybe making an exception here when we talk about economic development for Central America as a positive plan uh, rather than what some conservatives in Congress tend to see as President Obama's amnesty for unauthorized immigrants? Yeah, I think there's going to be a real effort to separate those issues. Um, But in general, I think there's some interest and willingness among some Republicans in the Senate and the House to think about what can be done in Central America to improve conditions there uh, and see that as separate from the immigration debate in the United States. But overall, the intention of the administration, certainly what I'm putting forward is that Uh, the best way to deal with some of these underlying issues, the push factors that are are motivating uh, children and families to flee to the United States is really to address the problems of crime and violence and and economic insecurity in Central America. There will always be people leaving Central America. There are many families in the United States because of years of migration. Uh, We know that's the case. But There are a lot of people that don't wish to leave their lands. They just are sort of forced into the uh, flee or stay there and run the risk of joining uh, criminal activity. And so we need to provide some options for people. As we know, it's a very conservative Congress. So are there conservative allies to this economic plan or Republican allies that you think may push this uh, and separate those issues in Congress? I think there are. I, I, I Again, we're testing the waters. We'll see what happens now uh, going forward with the uh, hearings here and in the House. But in general, uh, there are a number of uh, Republicans who want to support Central America, want to see uh, uh, you know an end to the violence and the corruption that's really uh, weakened those countries, uh, it, probably in an effort to slow migration to the United States. Let's talk then about that migration to the United States. Uh, last time you were on the program, we did talk at some length about that particular crisis of, of young children, unaccompanied children coming to the United States. Um, here we are in the spring. Do we see another summer wave coming? Are there any indications of what we'll be facing this summer? Well, the numbers between October of last year and the end of February of this year, which are kind of the latest numbers, suggest two things. Uh, Arrivals of uh, children are down considerably from 2014, uh, maybe as much as 70%. Uh, However, they're up as compared to 2013. Uh, slightly, not dramatically. So we, we're thinking that there will continue to be migration uh, of young children and family units with children, um, that it might be more than 2013, but less than 2014. The question really is why? What's changed? What's different? Uh, and there I'd have to say that not a lot has changed in Central America. Honduras has seen uh, its world record homicide rate go down from uh, high 80s to high 60s. 
not insignificant, but still 66 per 100,000 is a tremendously high homicide rate. I certainly would congratulate him for improvements, but not celebrate the, you know, peace in Honduras. So some of those underlying factors are still there. El Salvador saw a dramatic rise in homicides during 2014 as the gang truce there broke down. So there are still underlying factors. The economy still continue to be quite weak. I think one of the thing, two things have changed actually, um, for better or worse. One, the U.S. and Central American governments have put forward aggressive messaging, saying, you know, don't go to the U.S. They're not going to receive you with our open arms. The travel is treacherous. You run risks. Uh, and obviously that's had uh, a dampening effect on people uh, leaving for the United States. The second thing is clearly Mexico itself has begun to play a much more uh, uh, important role in terms of uh, enforcement and deportation of Central Americans. When we talk about these unaccompanied children, we're not just talking about teenagers or even tweens. We're talking about children in in the single-digit ages that managed to find their way to the United States, obviously sometimes in groups, but but still that that fact that they're coming without a parent, what's happening to them when they get to the United States? I, I think anyone who uh, cares about human rights cares about how those children are being treated when they get here to the United States. Yeah, when we, two points there, and I think you, you hit on a, uh, one that, uh, while we officially con- count them as unaccompanied minors as they get to the border, they really weren't. It wasn't like a five-year-old was jumping on the bus and making his way to the border by himself or herself. They were coming in groups, often with older family members. I mean, they might be 16, 17 years old, but there's some uh, connection there. Uh, many times they're coming with a paid trafficker known as a coyote Uh Still, uh, uh, you know, uh, obviously a very difficult situation where they face abuse along the way. But uh, I think that people have to be clear that the unaccompanied part really came when it when they arrived at the U.S. border, uh, when they when the children sort of went forward and turned themselves in. Why are they turning themselves in? Because U.S. law says that any child, any minor who comes from a non-contiguous state. So if you're not from Mexico, you're not from Canada, then you're eligible for a hearing process where you could make your case uh, for a political asylum, for some kind of protection under international norms. And so what happens is the children are taken in, are processed by uh, the Border Patrol, by CBP, and then shortly thereafter, they're turned over to the uh, 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 Health and Human Services um, that has an Office of Refugee Resettlement that takes them in and tries to resettle them in some part of the United States with a family member or someone else that's willing to accept them. Now, they are also given an order to appear, which is a, a judicial order that says you will have a date at which you need to appear for a hearing, an, a, a, an immigration hearing, and then they can make their case for why they should not be deported. Now, this is an interesting thing about that process. Immigration hearings are administrative and not criminal, so you, as a child uh, or any immigrant, have no, partic- no right to 
uh, uh, legal representation. You can hire one if you want, but there's no obligation on the state to provide you with some sort of legal representation. So that's when you have cases where 10-year-olds, 12-year-olds have to appear before an immigration judge without any legal representation and then would be asked to make the case as to why they go don't go back. And that's really a, a, a troubling process. Uh, immigrant rights advocates clearly uh, and rightly are upset about that process. And so many children uh, who deserve some sort of protection may indeed be deported by the United States back to unsafe situations. Thank you so much, Eric Olson, Associate Director of Latin American Programs at the Woodrow Wilson Center in Washington, D.C. Join us via Skype today on Latin Pulse. Thanks for being our guest. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this edition of Latin Pulse. If you'd like to send us your suggestions or comments, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud, or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. If you're looking for earlier editions of Latin Pulse, we're available in various locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, and we're also now available via the podcasting service called Stitcher. You can also find us in the Brazilian online game, Minimundos. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, .org, and then slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org slash Latin Pulse. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse for our entire team, production assistant Sierra Hancock and producer Jim Singer, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escuchenos otra vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced at the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university, headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, with music copyright support through Webster University and Link TV. This program is copyright 2015 Las Rocas Productions. <laughs>